0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, A New Nation. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 47, verse 29 to 48, verse 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a new message entitled, Last Words.
1: There are some famous last words spoken by famous people that are, well, they're anything but profound. Jane Austen said, I want nothing but death, and then she died. Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm so bored with it all. Thomas Carlyle ended up by saying, so this is death, well, and then he died. Humphrey Bogart said, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis, and then he died. And Karl Marx's last words while he said, Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. So still arrogant, still willing to pour contempt on others to the very end. Well, contrast those words with the last words of Jesus. Luke 23, 46 says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. (laughs) There's a contrast. You know, on the one hand, there are either bits of nothingness or words of despair. And on the other, such confidence in God. Well, not all last words are profound. Indeed, a great many of them are anything but that. Some are just plain silly. Others are bitterness, as when, you know, one man complained that his lifelong rival was still alive while he was dying. And then after he said that, he died. Oh, the pain of having someone I hate outlive me. You know, others simply reflect that this is the end, and still others boast about what they've accomplished. And then, wondrously, there are those last words that really do reflect faith. In Genesis 48 and 49, well, they contain the rather lengthy last words of Jacob. And these last words really are a reflection of the man he had become. They reflect his confidence in the promises of God, and they reflect that he's a man of hope. And they also tell us that our death can be the hour that showcases the goodness of God. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, "...precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints." In God's sight, the day of a believer's death is a very precious moment, a moment of fulfillment of all God's plans in that person. It is the fruition of that which their life had hoped for. So let's begin with Genesis 47, 29-31, which, as we're going to see, are the first of a series of things that Jacob wants to say before he dies. Our passage says, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. You know, there's no one else who could have assured his place of burial other than Joseph. And so he calls his son to him in order to ensure that he will not be buried in Egypt. And we notice, first of all, that Israel calls for Joseph to place his hand under his thigh. Now, to the modern reader, that sounds, well, it's almost disturbing. We get a picture of his hand in the region of his genitals. I mean, what's that all about? And if you've been reading Genesis, however, you will have noticed that this comes up a number of times. When Abraham called his servant to go to Aram to find a wife for his son Isaac, He asked that servant to take an oath by placing his hand under his thigh. See, in that case, that sacred oath is made by placing his hand next to the place where Abraham's posterity comes from. Swear to me, he says to his servant, that my offspring will be in accordance with God's design. It's a very sacred moment. And so even though this action seems strange and even uncomfortable to us, to require that Joseph would put his hand under his father's thigh, the oath has something to do not just with Israel's burial place, but with the future of the people of God. But then rather than speaking about the future of the people of God, Jacob speaks about his burial. Don't bury me here. Take me to where my fathers lie in Canaan. And and of course, as we will see, Jacob has in mind the burial cave that Abraham had purchased from Ephron the Hittite in Hebron. See, that action is extremely important. Up until the moment of purchasing that burial site, Abraham had owned no property in Canaan at all. But this this, this cave was his first piece of property. And in this site, he buried his wife, Sarah. Now, in our day, we might react negatively. Wouldn't it be better to find a place for the living rather than for the dead? But a permanent burial site was symbolic that Sarah belonged to this land. She had inherited it. It's her promise from God. Later, when Abraham died, he was buried next to Sarah. And then Isaac and Rebekah were also buried there. And then in chapter 49, verse 31, Jacob will say that he also buried Leah, his first wife, and the first woman who gave him offspring in that very place. So Israel was waiting for his body to be laid beside the people who had been given the promise of God. Now, there's an expression that gets used in the book of Genesis. It's the phrase, gathered to his people. So for instance, Genesis 25 verse 8 says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. And then Genesis 35, verse 29 says, And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, some people believe that that phrase, gathered to his people, well, it means no more than that they were placed into a common burial cave where their people were also buried. But that's definitely not the case. In the case of Abraham, it is said that he was gathered to his people, and then after that, he was buried. And so, the common burial cave, well, it's only a symbol that the fellowship with his people had been accomplished. Let me say it even more plainly. Abraham, when he was gathered to his people, went home to be with the Lord, where others, the people of God, had gone before him. And you, if you're a believer, if you have now, in your journey, come to the point where you're dying, remember... You're about to be gathered to your people. Let that thought satisfy your soul. See, burying Israel among the people of God is a symbol that even death can't break the eternal fellowship of the people of God. And that's what Israel is saying to Joseph. Put your hand under my thigh as a symbol of life, and the people who follow me as a symbol that I have people. And please don't bury me in Egypt. I I want to symbolize in death that I belong to God's people. Place my remains where the other faithful people of God are buried, and symbolize that my fellowship with them has not ceased. See, there's an application here for all who have placed their hope in the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, you might want to think about 1 Corinthians 1542 to 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Look, I'm not saying it's wrong to cremate, but I do know that historically cremation has symbolized the destruction of the body and therefore the release of the soul or the spirit. But burial, well, that's a symbol that we're planting a seed and that this same body will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. Burial is a powerful symbol, not of despair or destruction, but of hope and of joyous expectation in the resurrection. You know, As I think about my own death, you know, as I contemplate that, I want to say in my last words and in the disposal of my remains that I have believed in the promise of the one who cannot lie. I go to be with my people. Now, our text tells us that after Joseph had sworn an oath to his father, the aged Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed and worshiped. God was going to allow him to testify to his truthfulness in his own act of dying. What a privilege. Let's now go on to the beginning of Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. That line sounds strange because we've just been told that the time for Israel has come to die. And now we're told that after some time he becomes sick. But for those of us who've been around the dying, it seems more logical to understand those words to mean that his condition has taken a turn for the worse. He's not only dying now, with this change of events, the, the situation has made the death imminent. And so Joseph, who would have spent a great deal of time away from the family because you know of his wider political duties, has been told that it's time now to go see his father. So we continue to read Genesis 48, 1 to 7. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples." and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan. To my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem.
0: Over the past months I've been asked a few of the same questions a number of times. Typically they would be, how is Dr. Neufeld? And the answer is, great. He's working from home for the most part, but well and safe. Another question is, how is the ministry doing financially? Well, to that I say, God is good, he provides. Gracious partners across the country continue to give and we're so appreciative. Times are uncertain and we must tighten our belts, so to speak, but we walk in confidence. So thank you for staying in touch, thank you for supporting in prayer, and thank you to those including our monthly partners who continue to give regularly. And for those who are not able at this time, we understand. Please keep praying for the ministry. To learn more about the Bible teaching resources available through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada or to support the ministry with a financial gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: You know, some of us, myself included, have noticed that Rachel, that was Israel's favorite wife, was not buried beside him. Yes, that's true, but she still has a place of honor. Rachel's burial site is the place where her Savior was born. Her death and burial was also chosen by God to be a signal that there is hope beyond the grave. Now, on this occasion of visiting his father, Joseph ensures that his two sons are along. And I have to imagine that Joseph's home life was probably a bit complicated. You know, Genesis tells us that Pharaoh gave him his wife. Her name was Asenath, and she was the daughter of a very influential Egyptian priest. And so we've got to imagine that she was raised in the paganism of Egyptian religious beliefs. And you have to wonder, how did that all work out? So, Asenath was the daughter of a priest named Potipharah, and the Bible tells us that this man was the priest of On. Now, On was another name for Heliopolis, which was the religious center for the worship of the sun god named Ra. And so, you have to picture her as a woman of privilege and power. And so, you have to see her as fully immersed in Egyptian religious beliefs, beliefs that gave her status in her culture. But the Bible mentions no details about her at all. Whether she came to believe in Joseph's God or not, we simply aren't told. But we have to imagine that for many years, that is, before his family arrived in Egypt, Joseph would have been the only one who would have held to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What had Joseph taught his two sons about the true faith? Well, and how did those sons react? I mean, we have to believe that the two sons watched as their father exercised considerable leadership in Egypt, and no doubt they must have been deeply influenced by their dad. But we also know that the only extended family the two boys had for a great many years would have been on their mother's side, along with all the wider relationship with Egypt's mighty priests. And so it's no accident that Joseph makes sure that when his father is dying, he's taking his two boys with him. And when Jacob or Israel hears that his son has arrived, he makes every effort to sit up in his bed. In his dying days, there's so much work to do, and he seeks to complete the task that God has given him. so Jacob begins by making sure that Joseph understands by what authority he is about to do what needs to be done. Unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph is not one of the patriarchs, and he had not received a miraculous divine revelation about the future of God's people. But Israel, his father, has. So Israel begins by recounting the first time that El Gabor, the mighty one, or God, the powerful champion, or or God, the mighty one in battle who vanquishes all his foes, that one appeared to him. It happened, said Israel, in Luz in the land of Canaan. Now in fact the name Luz was later changed to Bethel. And we also know that God appeared to Israel twice in that very place. You know the first time was when he was still fleeing from his brother. He'd been sent by his parents to Padan Aram and at that time he was still young and single and full of himself. You know on the way to Padan Aram he came to Luz. He slept that night out in the open. That was his first encounter with God. He saw a massive staircase, angels coming down and going up and And at the head of the staircase, in some fashion, he hears God speaking to him. I am Yahweh. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Yeah, that Isaac you've just deceived. And then instead of confronting him with his sin, God gives him a promise. Your offspring will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They shall inherit the land I promised Abraham and in you and your offspring All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that was his first encounter with God. And it was dramatic. And yet, at that time, Jacob was still not yet ready for God. The second encounter at Luz happened 20 years later. And by that time, all the bravado has gone out of him. And he had come to surrender his life into the hands of God. It's recorded in Genesis 35. And on that occasion, God announced, no longer will your name be Jacob but Israel shall be your name. And there again, God affirmed to him that his offspring would multiply greatly and that they would not fail to inherit the land that God was giving them. This then became the theme of Israel's life. Well, that was the promise. All of your children, that is all of them will be blessed and they will all live under the covenant that God made with me and with my father and my grandfather. And so you, my children are the children of a unique and a a destiny shared by no other people on earth. Ah, but we who are reading this might say, yeah, but what will Joseph's two children who have been living in two very different worlds, you know, the world of pagan idolatry and then the world of a holy promise, I mean, what will they make of all of this? But let's get back to Israel's words. Israel, by the authority of a man who has seen God, now tells Joseph something he would not have expected. Your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, shall be mine. So what does that mean? Well, it means that he's elevated those two boys on par with Reuben and Simeon and all his other sons. And by the way, Jacob mentions Reuben and Simeon because those two were the oldest, and Jacob gives Manasseh and Ephraim an equal place along with them. Well, practically, however, what does it mean? Well, it means that much later on, when Joshua conquers the promised land and he's busy dividing out the inheritance, both Ephraim and Manasseh would receive their own allotments. And by the way, if, if you're wondering how that works, because now suddenly we have 13 tribes of Israel rather than 12, well, please note that the descendants of Levi would be the tribe of priests and they would receive no territory in the promised land but they would rather receive territory within the other 12 divisions. That's to say the priests were to be present in each of the 12 tribes, and that would signify that God would be present among each of the 12 tribes. Now, just a little sidebar here. Please remember that later on it became usual to speak of the half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. But in reality, their tribal allotments were as large as or even much larger than the tribal allotments of others. And that means that the descendants of Joseph, although he's only one of the 12 sons, now suddenly gets not one twelfth of the land, but rather one sixth of a land. That means that Joseph has just received a double portion or twice the inheritance of his brothers. And it would also meant that Manasseh and Ephraim would take their place of leadership in Israel. And as we keep reading, we'll find out that Ephraim will be given key leadership, even primary leadership in the nation. When I hear that, I think of two things. You know, first, Israel, or Jacob, is now assuring that these two young men will no longer have a split personality. They're not going to be the grandsons of a pagan priest and then the grandson of Israel. No, no. At this moment, they're all in for Israel. Being a part of the people of God demands that of each one of us. Jesus said that we have to desert houses and lands and parents and everything else and cling only to him. He demands ultimate loyalty, and that's what these two sons learn. And apparently, as history carried on, what was said here took deep roots in their souls. You know, second, this also means that Israel is taking the privilege of the firstborn away from his oldest son, Reuben. We'll learn more about that later, but this is key. It is Joseph and not Reuben who will be given a double portion of the firstborn. Reuben's leadership will be taken away from him. And why would that be? Because his father knows that if he gives Reuben the leadership, the people of God are going to splinter. Reuben is not to be trusted with such things. So let's get back to that matter of last words. Well, clearly, these are not the last words of Israel. He's going to have a great deal more to say. But all of his last words come out of the soul of a man who is filled with hope even at the point of his death. What he said indicated that even at death, he was greatly concerned about the eternal plans of God with the promises that God had made both to him and to Abraham and to Isaac and to see how they would be fulfilled. Of course he's concerned for his own family. That's normal and that's natural but he is concerned for his family under the rubric or under the umbrella of the wider plans of God. Israel shows us that at this point in time, his heart is fully set on the promise. He wants his family to be what God has called them to be, and he also knows that they will in the end fulfill their purpose. And what do we learn from that? We should learn that our death reflects how we've lived. It reflects whether or not we still have hope at the brink of death, or whether we think we've actually come to the end. Israel's life teaches us that no one needs to go to death without their eyes brimming full of confidence and looking into the future and saying, it's just going to get better after this. What wonderful last words.
0: John, I think you'd agree there's a moral struggle in our country regarding the sanctity of life or perhaps the sanctity of death. Is it
1: possible that how we die is as important as how we live? Well, certainly when we die, it is the kind of the the end point that wraps up our whole lives together. But we have to remember, I think, Ben, that if we die with a statement that life comes from God and is precious. Uh, then we'll recognize that even the process of dying comes also from God. I know that death is a part of the curse, but for believers, it's our identification with the death of Christ. So all believers, when we understand the Word of God, hold life to be precious. And therefore, we need to say, yes, dying is important.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A New Nation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, these difficult times, we're so grateful for those who stand with us, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. You've ensured that in the midst of distressing days, trustworthy, relevant, and accessible Bible teaching continues to be offered every day. We're so grateful for your continued prayers and partnership. The month of June is one of the more critical financial months of the year for the ministries of Back to the Bible. And we know there are many because of the present difficult times who are unable to give. Please know we understand. But if you are able, your gift to help meet this important fiscal year end goal by June 30th would be so appreciated. And remember the ministry has been blessed this month to receive a $95,000 match pledge. So for every dollar you give, that gift is doubled up to $95,000. To offer a gift this month, call us, would you, at one 663 2425 or give securely online at
1: backtothebible.ca.